Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Tony Katz. This is Kendall and Casey. The Amber and Nigel Show. All right, well, when does your show start? Do we know? I feel like I've been promoting this for nine years now. This is the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIPC. Good evening and welcome to the Tony Kinnacast on 93 WIBC, equal parts broadcast and podcast. You can catch the broadcast, of course, on the air at 93.1 FM out of Indianapolis on the live stream on Twitter X, as well as YouTube.com slash WIBC. And you can catch the podcast on all of your favorite podcasting services. It's been a really long week. And I don't mean the kind of long week as like when you've been in the office and there's that one person who just keeps coming over to your cubicle and bothering you. I don't mean a long week as in uh, every single time that you have uh, tried to move something from the floor to the forklift uh, that it has cracked in your hands. Um, I'm not talking about those kind of long weeks. I mean politically, socially, and if you have touched the garbage that is social media, it has been a very long week. Of course, as we all know, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled 5-4 that the federal government had the authority to cut razor wire put up by the state of Texas on the border. And uh, Governor Abbott said, okay, well, then we're just going to keep slapping up more uh, wire. And you saw kind of a tense standoff start to take place between uh, what looked like the Federal Border Patrol Authority and the Texas National Guard under the direction of Governor Abbott. Uh, Basically, you couldn't even go on Twitter X without uh, the left calling for the arrest of 25 of the nation's governors who supported Governor Abbott. Um, And then on the right, uh, individuals talking about civil war and all other kinds of stuff. And then yesterday, Biden issued a 24-hour ultimatum. And the 24-hour ultimatum was by 1 p.m. on Friday, you are to have all of that uh, uh, restriction that you've kept all of the Federal Border Patrol and uh, you need to keep them uh, out of the way so the Border Patrol can move in and cut the barbed wire. This is unhumanitarian and a bunch of fake stories about Texas National Guard preventing a Border Patrol from saving these drowning victims, pregnant women and children in the Rio Grande. Oh, so terrible, Greg Abbott's this evil fascist. And the country just kind of waited. And now, those of us who know uh, kind of how certain things play out politically, and I'm not talking about like industry veterans. I'm talking about uh, people that have been around long enough to know that a lot of things are blown out of proportion, knew that Biden um, was not going to federalize the Texas National Guard and then deploy them somewhere because another state's National Guard would take his place. And in an election year, Biden can't afford to do that. And Greg Abbott knew that. And so we waited and we waited. And it was actually the Border Patrol itself that ended up giving Biden the loss today in Texas. According to a statement from the Border Patrol Union, uh, rank and file Border Patrol agents are not going to start arresting Texas National Guard members for following their lawful orders. That's fake news. Uh, The statement continues on basically saying that uh, the Texas National Guard and Border Patrol are very close and very friendly, which is shocker. Uh, And by shocker, of course, I mean, it's not surprising at all. Um, It turns out, guys, that um, in the state of Texas, a lot of Border Patrol agents and Texas National Guardsmen are, in fact, rather conservative and kind of don't like the border crisis as it is. 
Oh, there's a big surprise. That's an incredible. I think I'm going to have a heart attack and die from that surprise. So nobody's surprised at all. And in fact, senior Border Patrol officials have been reaching out from everywhere, Fox News Business to other agencies all the live long day saying, no, we're not going to arrest Texas National Guardsmen. And so you have what is genuinely the breakdown of any idea of a progressive control of the federal military border patrol against state National Guards, which is that a lot of members of the federal military, the U.S. Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, etc., as well as the federal border patrol and even a lot of alphabet agencies just really don't have any interest in messing with those they are serving with uh, because there are a lot of conservatives and also independents that don't find political nonsense to be that useful. So Biden really has nowhere to go and it looks horrible for his campaign. His polls are plummeting right now at a time when they need to be surging against all of the stuff that, that Donald Trump is going through. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And instead, what you're seeing is Biden start to fold. According to a statement from the White House uh, today, from President Joe Biden, uh, he has announced that um, he's willing to come to the negotiation table on the border without amnesty being on the table. And that's the first time the president has made any kind of an indication that he doesn't want to give blanket amnesty to all of those who have immigrated into this country illegally over the last couple of years, uh, of which at this point are well over uh, one and a half million. Uh, so now the Senate is starting to debate some kind of bipartisan agreement. And Mitch McConnell looks really, really bad among Republicans uh, because Mitch McConnell wants border funding tied to uh aid to Ukraine, which is extremely unpopular in the Republican Party and a fair amount of the Democrat Party at this point, as far as uh, morning consult and Reuters polls are concerned. The president has lost the battle publicly. There's no actually coming out of this looking like the victor. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said, "Okay, well, then do something. Go ahead and cut the wire. I dare you. And the president of the United States folded like cheap furniture. And, and this is where we are here in, in 2024. This is the main issue that is going to drive President Biden from any credibility in driving independents, i.e. moderate Republicans and Democrats, out to vote for him in November. There's no solution in which you're going to see people say, you know what, I really don't like Donald Trump, but I'm going to come out and vote for Joe Biden. A lot of people don't like Donald Trump, and that just means they're going to stay home in November. And as we saw in New Hampshire... This means that Donald Trump wins. You, you pull together the, the small amount of moderate Republicans and then the base of the Democrats and the independents to come out and vote against Donald Trump. It's not enough. The base outweighs them. What you are seeing is a lot of suburban demographics, suburban white women, uh, suburban men with a college degree, uh, suburban ethnic categorizations. So that means uh, black and Hispanic voters, excluding uh, some Indian demographics, uh, some Native American demographics, and then most of the Asian demographic. They're not coming out to vote for Biden. If they don't like Donald Trump, they're just going to stay home. And the evidence is that amidst all of the legal troubles that Donald Trump is currently suffering through, mostly, quite honestly, due to two things, um, either hiring really stupid lawyers that have no idea what they're doing, and number two, the fact that all of the far-left jurisdictions that are bringing on juries that are far to the left in New York, in Atlanta, in Washington, D.C., that are obviously going to be ruling against Donald Trump, nobody cares. Because you have a ton of different lawsuits that are coming to bear against the former president right now that are already baked into the cake. I'm a guy who, at 
the beginning of the primary season was going to vote for someone other than uh, former President Donald Trump. Now, given the choice between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. And looking at this situation and, and being very transparent with y'all, none of this surprises me. I, I knew that that Trump has had disagreements with individuals in the past. And this, this Jean Carroll lady who has tweeted out some super weird stuff over the years about sex, like sex tips that she's learned from her dog, um, talking about uh, really other strange things regarding being a slut, regarding talking about rape as a good thing, um, a plot of her supposed rape that is lifted almost verbatim from a Law & Order SVU episode, Um, and then a bunch of circumstantial evidence that really doesn't look quite good, like not remembering the month or the day or a lot of other details about the case. Um, Trump's lawyer didn't bring any of this up. So oh, so Trump's lawyer, who is they, a showboater named uh, Alina Haba, uh, left a lot of crucial information out, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to do when you are in the middle of a case in which all of the cards are stacked against you. So as usual, Donald Trump's biggest foe is not the left. It's the people who he allows to surround himself with. Because if there was one thing Donald Trump is horrible at, it is picking people. Donald Trump picks people in one way and one way only, and that is whoever compliments him. And that is going to screw him over as it did during his first administration. And it will continue to happen through this campaign, through these lawsuits, and up and through his next term in office, if and when he beats Joe Biden in 2024. And so this is really the way the stage is set currently. Right now, you have a situation in which Donald Trump is killing Biden in the polls, which a stiff breeze could knock over Biden at this point. And it's not due to Trump really winning a lot of key victories at the moment, other than that Biden is so awful and things were so decent during Trump's first term that that's really all anyone can think about. So a few things could be true at once regarding uh, Trump's lawsuit. Uh, Number one, very few people actually care. Uh, To people on the right, it's witch hunt stuff. To people on the left, it's the walls closing in yet again. And to people in the middle, it's Trump is plagued by a lot of lawsuits. Next. And that's not going to help Biden shift the polls in his favor. That's why Biden's caving on the border finally. And it's not going to be enough. And we're going to talk about how that's not enough later on in the show. Up next, we're going to be talking to Daniel DiMartino. He's a fellow with the Manhattan Institute. And there is a lot to discuss regarding the national debt, which is becoming so incredible that it could shoot the interest annually out of control and are being able to pay for it. Stick around. You are listening to the Tony Kinnick cast on 93 WIBC. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. The Tony Kennett Cast on 93 WIBC. Welcome back to the Tony Kinnett cast on 93 WIBC. I'm Tony Kinnett, and I'm also, uh, well, I would say I'm worried about uh, the ballooning federal debt continually taking up more and more and more and more of the uh, gross domestic product in the budget. Uh, But at this point, I think it's just become such a normal thing to have this massive anvil looming over all of our heads. You kind of get used to it, maybe. (laughs) Joining us, uh, as I just found out for the second time on the show, uh, because while I was gone, Stephen Kent guest hosted, brought him on first. Daniel DiMartino, a uh, fellow over at the Manhattan Institute and a former Hoosier. 
um, and also an immigrant and a survivor of the incredible mess down in Venezuela. How's it going, man? Very good. And you, thanks for bringing me, Tony. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, I wish that I could have gotten to bring you on first, but you know, I, I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the silver medal <laughs> on this one. So we're looking at the massive amounts of entitlement spending that are continuing to take up more and more and more of the federal budget. And for the first time in a presidential election history, both sides are uninterested at all in touching entitlement reform. Both sides. This is the very, very first time, I think, in at least 56 years that no one has mentioned federal debt spending. Um, and it's caused for a lot of concern, especially considering how much of the government's weight in debt just comes on entitlement spending alone. What, what are your thoughts, at least right off the bat here? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think there's this misconception, um, both on the left and on the right, that the government uh, is spending a lot of useless things that uh, we can just cut and everything financial will be solved very quickly. Sure. Uh, on the left, they think that we just need to cut this overspending on defense and contractors. And if we just cut a little bit on the Pentagon, then we can balance the budget. Well, on the right, there's this misconception that we just, you know, if we just stop aid to Ukraine and stop giving all this foreign aid that we're giving to foreign countries, then uh, we can balance the budget. And both are completely wrong because even if we said, okay, we're not going to touch Social Security, we're not going to touch Medicare, we're just going to cut a uniform deficit spending cut on everything else other than Medicare and Social Security. We would right. have to cut two-thirds of all other spending. That includes education, police grants, FBI, uh, I don't know, the CIA, the Department of Defense. Imagine having to cut two-thirds of the Department of Defense. Uh, like we, we would get invaded. That, that's what would happen. Border security, uh, everything would have to go if we don't touch Medicare and Social Security. So the fact mathematically is that we have to do it or we have to raise taxes massively. So that's something that really, I guess, kind of gets my goat for, for lack of a better analogy or, or a, I guess a, a joke colloquial, whatever, because I'm infuriated by the number of individuals who actually have not looked at the percentage of the federal budget that is actually spent on, again, Social Security, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and all of these massive entitlement programs that are just, hey, you're here in the country, we're just going to give you money. And yet again, you know, the left thinks that Lockheed Martin has a garden hose that's like hooked up to the Federal Reserve, and they're just draining the <laughs> money out. And then the right thinks that like foreign aid, there's a garden hose, and that's just draining all the money out. And they're not seeing the massive industrial water pipe that's jutting out the back of the Fed into Social Security. And when you talk about reforming that, everyone gets all, I, I, again, usually it's the boomers and some of Generation X who freak out and say, well, well, I'm owed my Social Security. I, and the Social Security checks are, they're pretty piddly, but, you know, because the government sucks at investing. Um, but that kind of Social Security scheme is the lodestone around the neck of American economy in, in, the, in the present and the future. We always talk about what our grandkids are going to have to deal with, but this debt is getting so large that, I mean, that the time is getting close to being here. I, I mean, yeah. do you think this is something we'll be able to shove off for a couple more generations or is this something we have to reckon with sooner rather than later? Well, the thing is that how Medicare and Social Security work is that there are each of them have a trust fund where payroll tax revenue comes in and 
spending goes out. So, or elderly today are getting the money paid by the young people today. They're not getting the money they paid into the system. They're getting the money that current young people are paying into the system. So this is not like the, you know, the government saved their money and he's spending it on them. That's not what happened. That money's gone. They took your money. They stole it. Okay. Um, for, for worse, but it, that's what happened. And so the, the issue is we're diminishing the economic prospects of American youth in order to prop up really upper middle income uh, retired Americans. And I know that's a tough thing to say and that's something the politicians are not willing to say because that's the group that votes. Yeah. Because the group that votes in most elections at the highest rate that conforms the greatest share of the primary electorate and the general electorate are the people who receive Medicare and Social Security. It's not the young people. And I guess it's our fault. It's y young people are the ones who should be taking care of this. Well, it's, it's a much different world than it was, uh, again, 100 or 200 years ago when, you know, you reached, you know, adulthood between the ages of 14 and 17. And then you started acting like an adult and taking things seriously. And then there wasn't a very prolonged geriatric age range that continued voting and contributing to society. Now that's completely turned on its head. And look, we could get into all of the demographic arguments and all of those kinds of things. Sure. Okay. But I wanted to talk to you about something else. We're on with Daniel DiMartino here on the Tony Kinnecast on 93 WIBC, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And uh, the thing I really wanted to pick your brain on is this idea that it doesn't matter how big the U.S. debt gets. And we hear this from uh, kind of economically deficient uh, members on the left who like to talk about interesting theories, we'll say. And they say, well, it doesn't matter how big the U.S. debt gets because everyone is really in debt to each other and, and the world is kind of just perfectly balanced on this uh, this chain of debt. Everyone owes debt to each other and so they don't want to risk the world economy collapsing, so everything will be fine. Is, is that a stable or a realistic way to look at the international uh, trade and financial system? No, it is not. Uh, this is an idea Shocker. that comes from, from some a theory called modern monetary theory. Uh, Stephanie Kelton is an American economist, uh, quote unquote economist, who, um, <laughs> along with the people who believe in that theory that is completely discredited, even in left-wing academia, by the way, left-wing economists, like not even Paul Krugman believes this. This is like the fringe of the profession. Because they believe that we can just, because we're the world's reserve currency and we owe our debt in dollars, the Federal Reserve can just print money and pay the debt. Yeah, because everyone uses the dollar. So, I mean, it would never devalue because everyone wants the dollar. I mean, right. this is like this is like toddler level logic. Like and, saying, and well, look, I mean it's true. We could print money and pay the debt now. But what's going to happen tomorrow when we need to borrow more? Nobody's going to lend us any money. And that's when the crash would happen immediately. So we would have massive inflation after we do that, and we will have an economic crisis. Uh, and so the, the reality is that in the past, we used to say that we owed our debt to foreign countries, to really foreign investors, not countries uh, that bought our debt. But that's actually better. What's happening now is that Americans are using their savings instead of for investing. They're using it for giving the, mo the money to the government as, as in the form of bonds, debt. So that's right. reducing investment in America. I wish it was foreigners who were buying our debt. That, that means they were giving us money for free. But it's not. Right. It's Americans who are losing their purchasing power. 
It's a very weird, it's, it's kind of like asking for an advance on your paycheck. And, uh, you know, I can't think of how many movies that have started where the characters down on their luck and the main characters ask for so many advances on their paycheck that their boss just won't give them an advance anymore and says, you know, you're out of luck. And it really does appear, uh, that we're, we're kind of cashing in on future expected, um, trade revenue and production revenue and industrial revenue. And at some point, you're, you're not going to be able to reach into the ultimate and infinite future to pay for things right now. It doesn't work like that. And the, de- yeah. the rapid devaluing of the currency is just, I mean, it, it's killing the average American in the process. It, so, look, it, it is happening now. The, the Medicare trust fund is going to run out in 2026, uh, which is in the next presidential term. Right. Uh, and if Congress doesn't do anything, then Medicare will be cut immediately. So this lie that we can just keep as, as it's going, it's not. Um, Social Security really is going to run out in the, the early 2030s. And, and so th- this, this needs to be reformed now. And it needs to be bipartisan. It, I mean, of course, it needs to be bipartisan. But like saying something needs to be bipartisan is like me telling my, you know, my toddler that she needs to eat a balanced dinner. You know, unless I actually make her eat the balanced dinner, <laughs> she's going to shove brownies in her face all evening because that's how people work, people think in, in the here and now, because like, and when I say that we're living in an age of hedonism, I don't mean in a conspiracy way. I mean that people are living in a time where we're living off the fat of winning the Cold War and just kind of counting on our luck just going on forever. And it, regardless of all of the crazy ideas about how this came to be and where it's going, it is patently false that you can continue cashing in on the infinite future by making mistakes in the present. It doesn't work like that. That's right. Um, look, the last time this happened was 1983 uh, mm-hmm. during Ronald Reagan's presidency that the Medicare and specifically Social Security Trust Fund was about to run out. Uh, benefits were going to be cut. Current retirees were, were facing a budget cliff. And Democrats and Republicans had to come together in order for the retirees not to face a cliff. And they raised taxes and they cut spending. And, and that's the last thing, it, the last time it happened, it was right at the cliff. Like it always happens with Congress when they need to course, you know, yeah. pass the budget. And I think that's what's going to happen in 2026 uh, when the next president is in office, which is why it matters who the next president and who the next Congress is, especially Congress, I would say. Well, yeah, if our Congress actually got together and did things instead of, you know, posturing on television, we could do a whole lot of things. <laughs> anyway, Daniel DiMartino, fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a good friend. I really appreciate your taking a moment to hop on the show. Always appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Tony. You are listening to the Tony Kennecast on 93 WIBC. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It's the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIPC. Good evening and welcome back to the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIBC. I'm Tony Kinnett and uh, it just seems that uh, time after time, and no, I I don't mean that that song from the 80s that Napoleon Dynamite slow dances to. Um, I, I mean time after time as in I feel like we're continually hitting our heads on the same piece of drywall um, so many times. And in this particular case, um, 
it's that that classic tale of uh, the left trying the same strategy, no one liking it, everyone getting exhausted, um, suffering severe financial distress, and then uh, just going for it again. So case in point this time, NASCAR has announced today that they are looking to diversify their audience uh, despite the anti-DEI backlash as viewership falls. So, as you guys might remember, NASCAR went in in the last uh, year, last two years, all into diversity, equity, and inclusion. Three really nice sounding words that really have uh, nothing to do um, with with fairness and and with improving uh, relations in the United States that were already pretty darn good before about 2009, 2010. And uh, NASCAR decided that, you know what our predominantly rural fans really need is to be lectured on how awful it is that they're white. Because uh, you know what NASCAR drivers are looking for, the, the color of the driver uh, that's out um, on the track. That's really what everyone watches racing for. Uh, what I really want to hear is the, the passionate backstory of perceived racial experiences of every driver. Um, there was this incident uh, a couple of years ago. Um, well, not that long. I'd say really about 18, 19 months ago at this point in which uh, Bubba Wallace, a NASCAR driver, discovered that there was a rope hanging um, in his uh, NASCAR garage, apparently tied like a noose um, until it was discovered that uh, that it was, it was just a garage pole rope to lift the door up and down and that a bunch of the other uh, garages along that stretch um, including a bunch of, of white drivers as well, also had the same knot on the same rope. But uh, terrible racism has to, has to be addressed by NASCAR. Or has to really has to be addressed. And then the viewership went down because people are like, well, screw this. I watch NASCAR, says the individual who likes NASCAR, to relax, to enjoy the, the racing. I, I watch it for that reason. And then when you're lectured instead, you don't get to relax and enjoy the show. Turns out people leave. So NASCAR is now looking to diversify their audience. This is, this is what always happens, by the way. And I love watching corporations go through this, where they'll do something to upset their biggest consumer base. The people that they originally went out to serve. Just people that want to sit back, relax, and watch the game. Or watch the race. Or shop at the store. Or watch the movie. Fill in the blank. And there's this big moral crusade that the organization decides that's more important than providing that service. And then people say, well, you know, it's, it's not worth my time to be lectured to while I'm trying to relax. And so they go elsewhere. And then it's, oh, we, we have to diversify our audience. And they find out that the, the people that would enjoy that kind of a lecture aren't interested in NASCAR. Um, people graduating with lesbian dance theory majors are usually not ones to sit down and watch the Daytona. Uh, I, I know that that's, again, common sense to folks like you and me. But for those with, with master's and business degrees who are walking around talking about corporate synergy and equity concerns on LinkedIn... Uh, they haven't really quite figured that one out yet. Now, NASCAR is not the first group. All right. Not the first group to not learn their lesson here. We could talk about Forbes, who is laying off their staff because instead of actually catering to business um, like GQ used to before um, Gentlemen's Quarterly also started focusing on a bunch of, of trans social nonsense and uh, environmental social governments and climate change and a bunch of things that have nothing really to do with innovations in business and in society. You know, again, like Forbes and GQ used to. Forbes is laying off a bunch of staff like GQ did. Um, sports Illustrated is also laying off a bunch of staff because instead of illustrating sports, 
and writing really great articles on what's going on in the world of sports and actually catering to the audience of people who like sports, uh, they started, you know, talking about how important it was not to be fat phobic because that's what when you think of sports. You think about being lazy, um, about being fat phobic and, and posting a bunch of dudes in swimsuits on their swimsuit edition. The Los Angeles Times, no one's buying it because all of the columnists are writing about how the uh, former gubernatorial candidate Larry Elder, a black man, is actually a secret white supremacist. So no one bought the L.A. Times anymore. Now they're laying off all of their staff and all of the Gannett newspapers, uh, the Gannett newspapers. Sorry, I always get DMs because I pronounce the name wrong. The USA Today Gannett brand of uh, organizational newspapers. Uh, who have papers all around the country, online publications all the way around the country, like the Indianapolis Star. Uh, No one's reading their paper anymore. For the same reason, no one's reading the LA Times anymore. The journalists are crap. They're not good at their jobs, and so therefore, no one is spending money on them. And so, Gannett, like every other corporation would do, is saying, look, we don't have the money to fund this garbage anymore, so we're going to lay some people off, and they don't learn. And we can continue on down the list. Disney subscriptions are going down. Also related to Disney, ESPN's viewership dropped like 1.5% in December. Uh, They're actually concerned, according to an article over at uh, Sports uh, Provision Media, that, uh, (laughs) I can't believe it, they actually may not be able to sell enough Super Bowl ads this year. That Super Bowl ads are in trouble because people don't want to be lectured by the organizations that are hosting the Super Bowl. Things are fine. And the good news behind all of this is that there are things eventually coming to replace it. Now, the problem is people are saying, well, where is the immediate right now? Where's the alternative platform to ESPN? Where's the alternative platform to YouTube? Where's the alternative platform to, to shopping at Target? And people are aggravated because people haven't snapped their fingers and fixed the solution right away. That's not how that goes. The first thing that occurs is the revivification of classics. People start to turn to things in the medium that is no longer comfortable that were good in the first place. So instead of a lot of the the new garbage programs on kids' cartoons, for example, that are talking about gender, non-binary nonsense, and, and police brutality and other things that don't belong in children's programming, people are putting their kids in front of shows that aired in the 90s, in the 80s, and in the early aughts, because that's when those kind of programs were decent enough to watch. You're also seeing some new ventures start to jump out there and take place. I know the Daily Wire's Bent Key programming has started putting out a lot of programming, started providing uh, some kinds of services to kind of counter, be some kind of an opposition, competition, you might say, uh, to what has become a really garbage ecosphere. And honestly, in the media landscape, you're seeing a lot of publications that are rising, both in the center and on the right, to counter what the left owned in the media corporate legacy landscape for a very long time. The catch is, it's not going to be an overnight thing. Over the next couple of years, probably the next couple of decades, you're going to see competition drive the market back into a place that makes money, because that's really what this is all about. As these large corporations lose more and more and more money, both in a shareholder sense as well as a corporate equity sense to the DEI crowd, you're going to see some autocorrection take place, like Disney reshooting Snow White after the backlash because uh, their main actress called the original story of Snow White like a a rapey white supremacist story. You're seeing some autocorrection. It's just going to take a few minutes. So take heart. We're on the right track because while the left isn't learning these lessons, others are. 
and you're going to see some great stuff come out of it. Up next, we're going to talk about some mail time. Got a few messages that have come in we've been needing to answer. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Tony Kinnacast on 93 WIBC. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It's the Tony Kennett Cast on 93 WIBC. One last stretch to get to the weekend. Hello, I'm Tony Kennett. This is the Tony Kennett Cast on 93 WIBC. It's time for some mail time. And uh, we don't actually have like a set time. Uh, just kind of wait until some questions pile up throughout the week or weeks and then just kind of air those out like dirty laundry right here on the air nothing held back if you want to send something in you can always shoot them over to us on twitter x or on the facebook page at the tony kennett cast all right first question comes from a guy named john whose last name i'll omit Uh, he says i was at the first principles forum last night which I, i believe was an event that was held in indianapolis um, and there, uh, there, there was some kind of a, a gubernatorial debate last night. And I, I'm assuming based on his question, he says the only people who looked like they wanted to be there were Curtis Hill and Eric Doden. Everyone else looked tired. The audience was tired. Why? Uh, so I have not seen the first principles debate yet. Um, but I will answer the question as to why I think the people looked tired, um, in a debate in the Indiana gubernatorial election. And the long and short of it is, it's not really a competition. It's just kind of a blob, just kind of a mediocre blob. All of the choices in the Indiana gubernatorial um, election, including the Democrat uh, Jennifer McWilliams, aren't really exciting Hoosiers. Uh, Curtis Hill has a little bit of momentum because he's really great on cultural issues. Uh, And then Eric Doden has a really good rapport with a a lot of uh, local Hoosiers as well. Um, But doesn't neither Hill nor uh, Doden really spend a lot of time targeting the, the two main candidate front runners? Uh, those would be uh, Mike Braun and Suzanne Crouch. Uh, none of the candidates have really produced what I would consider like solutions to a lot of the problems that Hoosiers are facing at the moment. Uh, any of those candidates could easily beat uh, Jennifer McCormick in like a knockdown drag out punch. Uh, I think I said Jennifer McWilliams earlier. Jennifer McCormick, uh, not. She has a snowball. She can't even pull Henry County, which is where she's from. Uh, So that stuff said, no one's really excited because there's really not a whole lot to be excited for in the gubernatorial debate. Next question from Miranda. What do you think about Mike Pence? I've heard you say nice things about him, uh, though you are friends with some of the guys on WIBC who think he's the worst. What's the deal? Uh, I have a lot of friends who think very different things about a lot of different people. I have friends who are uh, diehard Trump supporters, diehard DeSantis supporters. Um, I have uh, even a couple friends who are Nikki Haley supporters. God bless them. And is is even worse as this is going to sound. I even have a a friend um, who is currently serving in a Democrat position uh, in Central Indiana who is very very opposed to a lot of the things that I support and believe. It's all right to have friends on the other side of the aisle. Uh, some of those friends I see as opportunities to maybe convince of better ideas down the road. As for Mike Pence, Mike Pence was my congressman, um, and uh, though I was in high school at the time, I, I thought he was a pretty decent congressman. Um, he, I thought he was a better governor than a lot of people uh, accuse him of being. I thought that Mike Pence was a better governor than uh, 
Mitch Daniels before him. I think Mike Pence was a better governor than Eric Holcomb is now. Uh, I thought he made some really good decisions while he ran the state. And as a vice president, I think he was a really good vice president. Uh, again, I think that a lot of individuals outside of Trump ran that campaign. I think that what happened near the end uh, was really, really unfortunate and was a mess. And in my in my position, I don't know if I could have could have done any better. That was a train wreck after a train wreck. So I, I do personally like Mike Pence. As to his governance, well, that's a totally different issue. Um, because do I think he was a good vice president? There's really not a whole lot that the vice president does. Um, as John Adams was very quick to point out early on in being the first vice president. Uh, so that's kind of my opinion there. I know that I know that Rob Kendall, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, doesn't like him. And he has some really good reasons to do so. Uh, but that's just kind of my take. It may not be perfect, but that's just kind of it laid out in front of my feet. Uh, here's This is from a, a person named Argon33. Um, don't you claim to be a journalist? Why do you hate journalists and mock them losing their jobs? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I do not categorize myself as a reporter. So you'll notice that on my bio on Twitter, on the site, and on anywhere that there's like a, a kind of an inscription under my name, I say I'm an investigative columnist. And the reason I classify myself as a columnist is because I very openly am a conservative and am very openly biased. And so when I report the news, and I do write some news stories, I will list up the top whether this story is a news report, whether it is analysis or commentary. And in an analysis or commentary piece, I will very clearly, openly, and honestly give you the facts surrounding the situation, and then I will tell you what I think about it and why. And I try to be as careful as I can to cite my sources as articulately as possible. I don't believe there's any person out there that doesn't have bias. And the issue that I have with a lot of journalists is claiming to be unbiased, claiming to be reasonable and not political, like a lot of journalists, for example, from the Indianapolis Star or the Capitol Chronicle or State Affairs or whatever that new rag is that's already just gone to crap. Uh, they'll tell you they're fair and then they are very, very leaning to the left. And I have no problem with people being leaning to the left as far as you know, journalism standards are concerned, but at least be open and honest with us about it. And that's really the key. The reason that I am gleeful, as like the LA Times, Washington Post, the Indy Star, a lot of those journalists are uh, kind of headed out the door, is that they spent the last 10 years uh, telling people that they were awful, horrible, racist, bigoted, homophobes with no evidence or grounding whatsoever, uh, accused them of destroying the environment, of destroying the world. And then when those people lost their jobs due to climate legislation, said, well, you need to learn to code. And now those people, those journalists, who are unable to provide a service that people are willing to pay for are losing their jobs. And I find that funny. Make sure to follow us on the podcast. We'll see you Monday. This has been the Tony Kinnick cast on 93 WIBC.